Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with mass casualties from an explosion that struck a hospital in Gaza, which Palestinians are blaming on Israel, while Israelis are blaming a rocket fired by Islamic Jihad. While information wars play out and the facts of what happened are yet to be verified, we will go to London to speak with David Hurst, the editor of Middle East Eye, who formerly was the chief foreign leader writer for The Guardian, former associate foreign editor, European European editor, Moscow bureau chief, European correspondent and island correspondent for The Guardian. He has an article at Middle East Eye, the Nakba that Israel has started will backfire. Then we'll get an assessment of today's vote in the House for a new speaker brought by Jim Jordan, who fell short by 20 votes from Republicans, leading to further wrangling and another vote later tonight that may be even worse for Jordan. Joining us to discuss Trump's attempt to take over the House via his loyal toady, Jim Jordan, is Ryan Cooper, a managing editor at The American Prospect. He is the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast as well as the author of How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And his latest article at The American Prospect is Spineless House GOP Moderates Line Up Behind Jim Jordan. Then finally, we'll speak with Michael Hilsig, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter and columnist at the Los Angeles Times, who currently writes a twice-weekly column covering business and economic issues relevant to life in California. His books include The New Deal, A Modern History, and Iron Empires, Robber Barons, Railroads, and the Making of Modern America. We'll discuss his latest article at the Los Angeles Times, How the Supreme Court Could Kill a Wealth Tax Before It's Been Tried, and how the plutocrat-captured Supreme Court chose a specious case as a cover to make a massive gift to their billionaire backers. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And before we go to our next interview, which we recorded earlier, at this point we don't know what was behind the explosion that struck a hospital in Gaza, which Palestinians are blaming on Israel, while Israelis are blaming it on a rocket fired by Islamic Jihad. And joining us now from the UK is David Hurst, the editor of Middle East Eye, who was formerly the chief foreign leader writer for The Guardian and a former associate foreign editor, European editor, Moscow bureau chief and European correspondent and island correspondent for The Guardian. And he has an article at Middle East Eye, the Nakba that Israel has started will backfire. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Hurst. Hello there. Hello, David. And we're just now learning that a hospital in Gaza was bombed or blew up. Nobody's quite sure about the origins at this point. But the numbers of possibly people being killed, and this is patients, women and children, along with doctors, are as high as 1,000. At this point, the Palestinian health ministry says there are 500 dead. What's the latest that you're hearing, David? Well, it's, it's exactly that. I mean, um, you know, we, as we're speaking, this uh, atrocity is unfolding. Israel says it's investigating. It has, its air force has hit the pattern of, the Air Force strikes has been particularly murderous. They've stopped pretending to give people fair warning and get out. In fact, there are instances of them telling to clear civilians from one area, only to bomb the areas to which they were sheltering. They've bombed areas in Gaza which have never been bombed before because there were no military targets there. There's a sort of middle-class area by the sea that's been leveled. Instead of bombing individual buildings, they're actually leveling whole districts. And there has been no attempt 
to limit civilian casualties or even distinguish between military and civilians. Now, we covered, uh, the, we've covered everything for the last 10 years in the Middle East Eye, but I particularly remember the last ground incursion was in 2014. And then after you know, a number of days, the total number of casualties was 2,000. This is now heading way, way above that figure and very, very rapidly. And the, the ground assault hasn't even started. 2014 was the last time the ground, uh, they, uh, that they went in. And so uh, what we're seeing is an attempt to, I feel really quite confident in saying, to kill as many civilians as possible and to push them further south. For reasons we can discuss later on, I don't think that plan will work. But even the, the Israelis basically ruled out half of Gaza. That's one million people, 1.1 million people, and said they had to flee. But these strikes are taking place uh, even outside this area. So, And strikes have been taking place in Rafah, which is definitely outside the area where uh, Israel told roughly half the population of Gaza to flee. And as we speak, Joe Biden is uh, probably in the air, about to travel to, uh, about to land in, uh, to, to Israel. And Israel still hasn't let any of the thousands of aid trucks, the other side of the Rafa border, from crossing it. So it's cut off all electricity. It's cut off all food. The water's been cut off because, and so, and you've got all these aid trucks uh, with water and food just standing there uh, for day after day uh, while um, Israel bombs the civilians of Gaza at will. So this is, even by the standards of the last 10 years, even by the standards of Gaza, this is the most brutal act that I've witnessed in covering these events for some time. But David Hurst, when you say it's their policy to do this, that flies in the face of the announcements that they've made, particularly standing next to Secretary of State Blinken after a seven-hour meeting, where you know, and, and Biden has reiterated the need to protect innocent Palestinians in Gaza, and that's what also what... Secretary of State Lincoln said that they had agreed with the Israelis. So America what? is not in control of Israel, and I America understand. can say what it wants, but the reality on the ground is what's unfolding as we speak tonight. So who's making these decisions? Israel is making these decisions. Yeah, but who in Israel? Is there, if they say... Well, I mean, if, if, you know, they haven't exactly held back on their pronouncements of, of what they were going to do to Gaza. They said, you're of gallant, so the defence minister said all the normal rules apply. We're not going to be bound by uh, international law or, or war crimes. Uh, they've made the most bloodthirsty statements. I mean, there's been a long list of them over the last mm. 10 days of what they would do to Gaza. And they're doing exactly that. America's got no purchase on this. Well, but the president of the United States is arriving there, and uh, this is going to blow up in his face. It sure will, because um, what's happened is that in the initial reaction, Biden gave speeches which said that Israel had every right to do uh, currently what it's doing. Uh, we've only just started realizing in, in America actually of what this is leading to. But this is leading to a death toll of easily 20,000 Gazans, 10 times more than were killed in 2014. So this is a humanitarian disaster that's been created. And America, uh, Europe, and the UK basically gave Netanyahu the greenest of green lights to do this right from the offing. The narrative was that Israel had faced its 9-11 in a hideous Hamas attack that had, uh, that had butchered men, women, and children, and that uh, Israel had the right to defend itself. That was the narrative given by the United States, by Biden, from the off. Now, there are two things that are happening that has given rise to, to I, I think, a U-break turn that, that is about to be made by America. Uh, one is the scale of the suffering, as we're seeing tonight, and, and the sheer amount of casualties, and what are obvious uh, war crimes. 
And the second is that, that, that neither Biden nor Blinken uh, appreciated was the fact that this can trigger a regional war. What's been happening in the last 48 hours, not just with Blinken, but also with our Rishi Sunak, the Jordanian king came here along with his foreign minister. They've all warned that their countries are boiling. There have been hundreds of thousands of Jordanians, not just Palestinians, but Jordanians, East Bankers, in Amman, saying, uh, we are all Hamas. You know, they, 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 the, the, the foreign minister of, of Iran has been going around saying, this is a red line for us, mm-hmm. and, and, and we will get involved. Hezbollah's finger is on the trigger. So a regional war really is in the offing. And I'm not sure that Biden or Blinken can now stop the process that they helped start by supporting Israel in the manner they did in the first few days of the Hamas attack. But the Israeli Israeli military strategy and the the strategy both of the Minister of Defense and of Netanyahu and of the coalition government, including Benny Gantz, as far as I know, and I'm sure they've shared this with the United States, their strategy is to literally exterminate the Hamas fighters, and that could be up to 60,000, as you point out. I've heard, you know, basically 30,000 hardcore and the rest of volunteers or whatever, but 60, let's say 60,000. They want to kill them all and then basically turn over Gaza to the UN and to whatever Arab country wants to take it. And that, I understand, is what they intend to do. Is that your understanding? Uh, there are lots of different versions of what you've said. Uh, one of them was to divide Gaza into a north and a south and have some sort of Arab leader who was a tame one, uh, like uh, Mohammed Dahlan, for instance, to take over the south. Initially, what, uh, what uh, Israel wanted was to drive uh, a substantial number of Gazans across the border into Egypt. And Egypt said, over our dead body, we're not accepting a mass uh, Gaza refugees. Initially, there are credible reports that America offered Egypt uh, $20 billion to accept 1 million uh, Palestinians. What initially Netanyahu said, right from the word go, was that the Middle East will change significantly after all this is over. And the original um, Israeli plan was to wipe out Hamas, but then wipe out Hezbollah, and also deal with Iran, and do all three one after the other. Um, now that is uh, a, a mass exodus of uh, refugees, which the Palestinians would call another Nakba, or catastrophe, i.e. repeat of what happened in 1948, is now off the agenda because uh, Egypt and Jordan have both told Anthony Blinken that their states could collapse if, with an influx of Palestinian refugees, that it could destabilize Jordan and destabilize Egypt. So what, so what, what America is faced with is an ally in Israel that's out of control and is not doing what it wants, that is bombing at will and causing mass casualties, out of rage and revenge, initially to drive Palestinians out of Gaza, but now just simply to kill them, and uh, total regional instability, and uh, the, the, the real prospect of, uh, as a result of this, Hezbollah getting involved, and Iran getting involved through, through its proxies. But, for example, when Biden arrives there and meets on Wednesday, and then goes on to Jordan and Egypt. He's supposed to meet with Abbas, with the Palestinian Authority. Abbas has already said he's not going to meet with Biden. Let's go back to the first plan, which is that Israel goes in and exterminates Hamas fighters and then basically hands over the territory to uh, the UN and to whichever Arab support they can find, like Qatar or Saudi or whoever wants to rebuild the place. That's plan A, okay? And the other ones attacking Hezbollah and, and Iran, obviously, even if they're on the agenda, they can't do that quite now. And in fact, you're saying that they're probably going to invite them in in any case. But 
what is the point? If that's your strategy, to kill Hamas and then to hand this territory over to the UN and whatever Arab country will take the, the people, you don't need to kill the people. That's counterintuitive. So I don't understand if this is their strategy to, to kill civilians. It literally goes against their military strategy. Ian, I, I really don't think any of this is in the realm of the real. You can't eliminate Hamas. Hamas isn't well, that, just... that's their intention, it, though, isn't it? Yeah, but Hamas is not just its number of fighters. It's a political movement. You just can't... Do, and there are people, lots of people, people who are not remotely uh, sympathetic or Islamist or religious in any way, Palestinians of PLO, who say you cannot eliminate Hamas. Uh, you can't do it by eliminating its leaders or its fighters. It's a movement. It will grow up again. So uh, this is like someone coming to say, oh, you know, we're going to uh, eliminate the Democrat Party. You can't do it. There are too many people. You can eliminate the, le the leadership, but you can't eliminate the party. And so this is not... This is not a credible strategy, and it's not. And, and what Israel tells the international community and tells Biden has, I mean, just the evidence shows from the first 11 days, nothing to do with actually what's going on on the ground, where they are deliberately, I mean, something like 30 families have been wiped out, right? Families, whole families. I know someone who's, 14 members of the family were wiped out in one hit by a precision bomb. Now, that is not the action of uh, a reckless pilot or an angry pilot or uh, if it's repeated 30 times. Uh, these are precision strikes on targets that they know are there. This is not Hamas hiding underneath them or some tunnel they're trying to get, and by the way, people as human shields are going to be there. They are direct hits on families. And there's so much evidence of what has actually been happening from, from Gaza as to make any of the statements that Biden or Blinken get really very suspect. And I think America now is in a hell of a mess because it's just about waking up to the fact of, of, of what this... America doesn't want a war in the Middle East. Well, Biden, clearly, while he's there, they're not going to invade. But probably the minute he leaves, they will. And then he's going on to Jordan and Egypt, which are roiling. So I would not want to be in Biden's shoes. I, that's why I don't understand what the Israeli strategy is. If you, as, as you've made the case, David, think that this is deliberate strategy to kill civilians. It makes no sense to me. Is Israel gave fair warning that all the rules of war that normally pertain to a strike on Gaza are off the table. And initially, I think what they tried to do was drive as many Gazans out of Gaza as possible. But Egypt stopped that. They blockaded the only exit at, at Rafah. And then what happened was that uh, as, the, as the casualty count has rocketed, Day by day, we've had something like 30 families who've been killed in direct hits and, and, and strikes. And now we have unimaginable scenes in, in a hospital with up to a thousand dead men, women, children and doctors and nurses. The possibility of destabilizing Jordan and Egypt, which are uh, Israel's primary uh, allies and American allies, and the possibility of Hezbollah pulling the trigger and making it a regional war. I mean, if we just look for the moment, not at Gaza, but at the, at, at the northern border, this is now, after exchanges of artillery and uh, uh, fire, probably hotter than it's ever been since uh, 2008. It's just right for a war there. And Jordan is, is boiling as well. And I think, put very crudely, uh, America backed Israel to the hilt and is now just about discovering that there is cause and effect. And the effect is that the whole region is, is, is up in flames. And you won't get a single Arab leader condemning Hamas at the moment. Not even Dahlan, which is very interesting. Dahlan fought a civil war with Hamas in 2007, uh, which he lost. It was Fatah versus Hamas. Now, uh, Dahlan got on uh, his channel, the London-based channel, 
to say that Palestinians have, you know, the right to resistance, you know, the sort of classical lines. Not even he condemned uh, Hamas, and he fought a war against them. You certainly had a, initially a condemnation of Hamas from, from the United Arab Emirates, but from no one else. I mean, it's just not there. So, so the whole of the Arab world, in, including deadly enemies of the Brotherhood and, and Islamists, are appalled by what's going on in Gaza. And I think Israel's initial strategy was to drive as many Gazans out of Gaza, uh, and that failed. And now it will be uh, the ground invasion to kill uh, Hamas. Uh, there are various versions of this, they, that they want to reoccupy part of Gaza. But I, as I said before, I don't think you can kill Hamas. It's a much, much bigger movement. And Hamas exists, even if they killed the whole infrastructure of Hamas in Gaza. Hamas exists in the West Bank. It exists in the diaspora. Um, and what you could have from Israel's point of view after all this dies down, even if they level Gaza and create, you know, tens of thousands of dead, but they, they capture it and they level it, what you could end up uh, having is Israel, even if, even if they succeeded in, in wiping out Hamas and just obliterating uh, everything that remains in Gaza and having tens of thousands of casualties in Gaza, even if, let's say, that is uh, the end of the fighting in, in, in a month's time, say, uh, what you would end up with is Israel surrounded by uh, hot or soft borders in which various um, uh, militias, either Hamas or Iranian-backed uh, or Hezbollah, would, would uh, be infiltrating through from Jordan, uh, from the south, from Sinai, and from the north. And so uh, that prospect is probably the worst outcome that you could have. And I'm talking from Israel's point of view. Well, David Hurst, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks. And again, I've been speaking with David Hurst, who's in the UK, where he's the editor of the Middle East Eye. He was formerly the chief foreign leader writer for The Guardian and a former associate foreign editor, European editor, Moscow bureau chief, European correspondent and island correspondent of The Guardian. And he has an article at the Middle East Eye, the Nakba that Israel has started will backfire. And again, the facts of what happened and who was behind the explosion that struck the hospital in Gaza have yet to be verified. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of today's vote in the House for a new speaker brought by Jim Jordan, who fell short by 20 votes from Republicans. Senor, senor, can you tell me where? Lincoln County Road or Armageddon Seem like I've been down this way before Is there any truth in that, senor? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ryan Cooper, the Managing Editor at The American Prospect. He's the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And his latest article at The American Prospect is Spineless House GOP Moderates Line Up Behind Jim Jordan. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ryan Cooper. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Ryan. And of course, we, today we saw all of these spineless uh, GOP moderates, um, most of them, voting for Jim Jordan. But still, there were 20 GOP holdouts, and you have to give them credit for being, I think, principled in contrast to their colleagues. And the vote actually was 200 Republicans voted for Jordan and 212 Democrats backed uh, Speaker Hakeem, uh, the, uh, their leader, uh, Hakeem Jeffries. And now, of course, the Republicans have retreated uh, behind closed doors to yell at each other and to scream at um, the 20 moderates. Um, so Jordan wanted the votes to be finished today and have himself elected as speaker today, um, doesn't look like that's going to happen, right? Yeah, I, I think, as you say, on the one hand, yeah, you see how, you know, a week ago, people were saying, oh, there's going to be 50 holdouts, maybe even 60. People were so mad at Matt Gates for forcing this on them. And then uh, Jordan did this pressure campaign, essentially involving Sean Hannity, 
whose producers were like emailing these members demanding to know why they weren't standing, you know, behind uh, uh, Jim Jordan. But yeah, we also see that, you know, these, these guys are clowns, you know, they can't, you know, say what you like about Nancy Pelosi. She knew how to count votes and she would never, ever have gotten her into herself into a situation where she's nominated for speaker without the votes in the bag. Um, and it's just comically inept, you know, and and also I should say, you know, that ordinarily this wouldn't this this wouldn't even be a thing. You know, the 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 big wrangling happens within the caucus. That's how like a parliamentary sort of party works. You have an argument amongst yourselves about who's going to be your representative for speaker. And then once that's finished, you have your vote. Then everybody agrees to vote for whoever wins. And that has been how both parties have made their decisions for like hundreds of years now. And and just now that's out the window. Uh, Steve Scalise won his, you know, he won a majority of the Republican caucus, but then a bunch of people refused to support him anyway. So it's like, what are we even doing here? You know, it's just total chaos. Well, it started out with Representative Elise Stefanik, the Republican from New York. She formally nominated Jim Jordan today and praised his style. Quote, whether on the wrestling mat or in the committee room, Jim Jordan is strategic, scrappy, tough and principled. Uh, tell that to the 177 young wrestlers at Ohio State that were abused and sexually assaulted by the team doctor Richard Strauss from 1978 to 1998. He, Strauss, of course, committed suicide in 2005, uh, but Jim Jordan as the assistant coach, witnessed uh, this behavior and did nothing about it. So what's principled about this guy? Yeah, it, it's hard to read that statement in particular as not an explicit taunt of Democrats and frankly, like any sort of sexual abuse survivors of any kind, you know, it was like on the wrestling mat, <laughs> you know, we're not, uh, we're not uh, taking this at all seriously. What, you know, what Stefanik is saying is that he's like a loyal Trump, you know, lunatic. Um, you know, he, he, he did not, in fact, vote to oust Kevin McCarthy, if I recall correctly. But, you know, aside from that, he was like centrally involved with January 6th. And he's been, you know, a loyal Trump toady for as long as Trump's been, you know, in, in office uh, and, and since, you know, losing the, the presidential election. And yeah, you know, this is like the type of person they're trying to foist on the country. Um, basically, an insurrectionist who's centrally involved in the uh, sexual abuse of college students, allegedly, according to the account of multiple former wrestlers at Ohio State University, as you said. And uh, all the while, while Republicans accuse, you know, uh, Democrats and like trans people being groomers of children. You know, I mean, the, the, the hypocrisy doesn't even begin to cover it. Well, a lot of this was said by Representative Pete Aguilar of California, who brought the nomination forth for Representative Hakeem Jeffries, who actually won, who got more votes, as I pointed out earlier, than Jim Jordan did. And he delivered a really powerful speech talking about Jordan accusing him of inciting violence on this chamber. And, of course, that was January the 6th, where we still don't know the extent of his involvement. There was an 18-minute phone call with Trump on January the 2nd and several phone calls with him on the very day of January the 6th. He's been subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. He's you know, refused to show up, and it's just extraordinary. And the bottom line, though, surely, here is that if Jim Jordan becomes Speaker of the House, in effect, Donald Trump will be the Speaker of the House. I mean, this guy is just a toady for Trump, isn't he? Yeah, no, he absolutely is. And, you know, I, I the, the, the possibility that sort of jumps out at me is that if Jordan is the Speaker, I don't think there is much chance that a President Biden victory would be certified by the House of Representatives. 
I mean, as you say, he was he was involved in in January sixth, and he's a loyal Trumper, and he voted to overturn the election, and a de- and an election denier too. Yeah, exactly. He was at literally two days after the election. He was at was starting the stop the steal nonsense. Yeah, and so I, you know, if 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 uh, Biden, you know, wins the re-election, fair and square. Um, yeah, I don't think there's much chance. I mean, I, it's, I suppose anything's possible, but I don't. I, if if there's any sort of scrap of justification or argument on the right that uh, you know Biden somehow rigged it or whatever, I don't think that a Republican-controlled House is going to vote to certify the the election. And then in that case, who knows what's going to happen? So, what's going on then with these people? And is this a reflection of the country? I mean, in other words, why are they such pathetic toadies to this wrecking crew, one-man destruction machine, this cheesy vulgarian, this idiot, this incompetent fool that's his tenure in the White House is probably the most disastrous in American history and is running again to stay out of jail. He's got 91 charges against him, and yet they rally to him. They go to the mat for him, to use a wrestling analogy, and it has to have something to do with their fear of the base. I mean, why are they doing it? That's the only explanation I can come up with. What's yours, Ryan? Well, certainly that is part of it. You know, we we have seen, um, you know, dissident Republicans, such as they are, be harassed and threatened with violence very extensively, you know, and not only on January 6th, you know, I mean, that was a core, one of their core chants, hang Mike Pence. There was a recent article in The Atlantic where Mitt Romney said he was spending $5,000 a day on security to protect his, his family from, like, Trump extremists, and that's because he's been consistently anti-Trump, say whatever else you might like about him. He clearly does not like Trump or the MAGA right and voted to impeach him twice. And, uh, you know, Romney's got a big family, but that's a lot of money, even for a very rich man like like him. And, yeah, so there's that aspect of it. But I think there's also, it's just, this is the nature of a sort of demagogic cult of personality authoritarian movement. That they they typically do they have this sort of characteristic a, a whole bunch of slavish sort of dim witted followers who are ready to die for a dear leader and then you know as you go up the food chain you have a bunch of lick spittles and toadies who are sort of like you know fighting to see who can sort of grovel the most and and like get access or control access to the to the leader. Um, and, you know, just jockeying for a position with, the uh, you know, the authoritarian figurehead, someone like Trump, uh, being the unquestioned leader and everything about is just being this, the keystone element of the entire political entity. You know, like Mussolini was like that. Hitler was like that. Francisco Franco was like that. In new, you know, this is like, I think, basically an authoritarian structure. And this is just how they tend to operate. And, you know, after a while, anybody who who uh, would have stood up to him, you know, just gets run out of the party. We saw it happen with Romney, who's quitting politics, uh, with Liz Cheney and, and with uh, other folks. So this is what it is now. Right. But, Ryan, the argument for Mussolini was that he made the trains run on time. Trump <laughs> and Jordan are the opposite of being efficient. They are absolutely sowers of chaos. They break things. I mean, former Speaker Boehner singled out Jim Jordan as the worst of the Freedom Caucus. You know, he basically said this guy's never, ever put forward one piece of legislation, which is what Aguilar pointed out today. He doesn't create things. He doesn't bring bills and and policies and plans forth. He just rips things apart and tears things up. It makes a lot of noise, and and that's what he does. And Trump, of course, is his mentor, and Trump is doing it in spades. And, you know, at the same time, of course, Trump is working overtime for Vladimir Putin. 
You know, we're just learning today from the lawsuit that Trump brought against Steele, the British spy behind the Steele dossier. The last thing that Trump did on his last day in office was to declassify classified FBI briefings with Steele, which resulted in the death of two Russian sources of Steele's. So Trump has got the blood of these two Russians on his hands. It just gives you, gives you an idea of how loyal he is to uh, Putin. So there's a real sickness in this country, and I, I don't for the life of me understand what do they believe, what do they stand for, these people? Yeah. Well, I would say, you know, first that it, it's actually something of a myth that, like, the fascists were good at administration. You know, uh, the the Italy was... was a, a big time mess, you know, Mussolini did not in fact get the trains to run on time and, and uh, Hitler's Germany, well, you know, uh, capable in some ways, especially the military was an absolute riot of administrative chaos. And it was terribly humiliating to a lot of Germans, you know, who'd grown up with like the, the, uh, you know, tradition of like Prussian highly organized bureaucracy and whatnot. Um, I, I think I would say, though, that the difference, you know, and the, the reason Trump is different from your sort of classic 20th century uh, authoritarian despot or would-be despot is that today we have, you know, sort of a propaganda is more important than maybe ever in human history and the form of social media. Uh, and you can, you know, it, it's like sort of all-out information war for the sort of minds of this, you know, group of people who, you know, they drive, it's, it's almost like a sort of brain disease. We, we saw this with the, the, the Palestinian six-year-old kid who was stabbed to death by his landlord, who formerly, according to his mother, was like a, like a second father to the kid and built him a tree house. But he was like, this guy was uh, spent a lot of time listening to conservative talk radio and watching conservative television and it drove him to kill a child you know and i think a lesser version of that helps explain the nuttiness of of this republican party because it's like the the idea of achievement or policy agendas of any kind has just sort of fallen uh, off the radar onto this like plane of sort of like postmodern grievance politics where it's all about the, the the relative like media reactions on Facebook and Instagram and formerly you know I would call it Vichy Twitter and then cable news and, and and conservative talk radio and it turns people into lunatics and it just makes them completely not care at all about actually achieving anything other than uh, kicking liberals you know punishing them harming them and you know making their lives miserable and that would be the point of a second Trump term. And probably if he were to get in there, a third and a fourth or as long as he lives. But that's as far as I can tell what's going on. So just in closing, then the guy that's really behind a lot of this, apart from the fact that Trump will end up running the House if Jim Jordan is the speaker because he's his toady, he can't discount the role of Sean Hannity in Fox News, right? He's he's effectively the Republican whip, isn't he? Whipping votes for Jim Jordan. Absolutely, yeah. No, and I think that's that's an excellent example of just what I'm talking about. I mean, the fact that like the Republican Party has sort of been colonized and taken over by its own propaganda apparatus. You know, this isn't how Stalin did things. Stalin said, "Here's what the party newspapers say," and I'm telling them what to do. And now it's like the propagandists are, 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 are setting the agenda and have actually merged with, taken over the Republican Party itself. It's like, it's like you, you, you're, the whole purpose of the party is to, to, to get people on Fox News to talk. And it's crazy. Well, Ryan Cooper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Ryan Cooper, who's the managing editor at the American Prospect and the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And his latest article 
at the American prospect is spineless House GOP moderates line up behind Jim Jordan. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how the plutocrat captured Supreme Court chose a specious case as a cover to make a massive gift to their billionaire backers. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Hiltzig, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and columnist at the Los Angeles Times, who currently writes a twice-weekly column covering business and economic issues relevant to life in California. His books include The New Deal, A Modern History, and Iron Empires, Robert Barron's Railroads and the Making of Modern America. And his latest article at the Los Angeles Times is How the Supreme Court Could Kill a Wealth Tax Before It's Been Tried. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Hiltzik. Well, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And Sheldon Whitehouse, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, has been saying of late that the Supreme Court is, is essentially being captured by plutocrats. And this law that they've taken up, or this case, the Moores case, about a $15,000 transition tax bill, which the plaintiffs are arguing is unconstitutional, the arguments that so far that have, re- that have gone through the court system have been emphatically uh, rejected by lower courts and, and debunked by all kinds of constitutional law experts. So why is it that the Supreme Court have chosen to hear this case? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question, uh, Ian. And the, uh, the, the, the conjecture is, uh, uh, is something that should make us all uneasy. The conjecture is that the conservative majority on the court wants to use this case to sort of signal uh, opposition to a wealth tax and in fact, the plaintiffs in the case, that is the conservative organizations that are backing this this couple from Washington State with the $15,000 tax bill, uh, those organizations have signaled to the, the Supreme Court that that's what they wanted to do, that they want the court to basically warn uh, Congress against enacting a, a wealth tax. Well, they've said as much, haven't they, in the uh, pages of the Wall Street Journal? Uh, they've said as much in the Wall Street Journal. They've said as much in their legal briefs as well, which is obviously directed exactly, precisely at the members of the Supreme Court. And the lead lawyer taking up this case, or one of the lead lawyers, is David Rifkin, who uh, co-wrote op-ed articles uh, in the Wall Street Journal with Samuel Alito, Justice Alito, which basically attacking the Democratic senators uh, who had asked him to recuse himself. And, of course, Alito is not recusing himself, as, as far as we know, neither is John Roberts, both of whom could reap benefits if this case is ruled in favor of the plaintiffs because they have investments in huge corporations uh, that have been parking their billions abroad. And also, you point uh, out... Go ahead. Well, that, that's true. In fact, the, the conflicts of interest um, between members of the Supreme Court and uh, these uh, and rich billionaires uh, are really basically shoot through this, this entire case. Paul Singer and Harlan Crow, who are the billionaires who've been vacation pals of Alito and Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, They have, as as I quoted to uh, commentators on this case, have their fingerprints all over the case. Basically, they are officers and financers of the Manhattan Institute, which has been filing uh, amicus briefs uh, in favor of uh, uh, for this case on the on the, the side of the plaintiffs. 
So, uh, so yeah, as I wrote, you know, it certainly looks as if the fix could be in for the interests of America's billionaires. And the Moors, who claim to be sort of victims of this tax, this uh, transitional tax that came in as a part of Trump's 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, right, which in itself was a huge giveaway to the wealthy. But there was an attempt to repatriate the approximate $2.6 trillion of profits offshore by big multinational U.S. companies avoiding American taxes. And the deal was that they would what basically get this one one time only offer and instead of paying a 35 percent tax rate to repatriate this money the multinationals the congress cut it down to eight percent and they were supposed to collect some 340 billion dollars for the treasury but as far as i know it's only around 270 that's come in so the balance uh, if this is struck down, would be a profit for these big companies like Apple, Pfizer, Microsoft, Johnson & Johnson, and Google, right? Uh, that's true. There's sort of a perverse irony in this whole thing in that um, basically the um, the plutocrats, the billionaires, are using the 2017 Tax Cut Act, which, as you said, Trump signed, and, and which was a huge boon for corporations and and the wealthy they're using this provision of that act basically to undermine the act itself and make it even uh, more more lucrative for their patrons yeah basically the act made dividends from certain foreign companies these are foreign companies that are majority owned by Americans uh, under the under the act the dividends from those companies were no longer taxable in the US but uh, to sort of lessen the blow to the Treasury, the the act enacted this one time only um, tax, at, at, as you said, at a fraction of what uh, this money would would actually be taxed uh, under the existing law. And the idea was to get uh, billionaires and corporations to bring uh, all of these uh uh, profits that were that were parked outside the country to bring them back. So so yeah, the Moors basically paid a fifteen thousand dollar tax bill uh, at at nine percent rather than thirty nine percent. And as far as they were concerned, that was still too much. They they wanted to pay nothing uh, on the argument that well they never actually got uh, a cash payout from the company. But, uh, of course, that, that under the law, that doesn't matter. You can be taxed for uh, for gains uh, in your in your wealth and your assets, even without receiving it cash. Right. But the Moors were members of the company's board of directors, wasn't it? this offshore company. Yeah. Charles Moore, who was the, the husband in the case, he was a member. Yes, he was a member of the board of. Uh, of directors, and and although in his lawsuit, he and his lawyer said that you know he had no control over company policy uh, in terms of uh, what it could do with its profits. Obviously, as a member of the board, he had some fiduciary responsibilities and some voice in company policies. And Moore is the son of Thomas Gale Moore an economist with the Competitive Enterprise Institute and an emeritus fellow at the Hoover Institution, who is famous for a book that he published in 1998, Climate of Fear, Why We Shouldn't Worry About Global Warming. So it's pretty fair to say that uh, these people are on the right, on the political spectrum. Right, and they're all basically part of, a, of an insular group of conservative anti-tax uh, plutocrats, um, as you said, Thomas Galmore—that's the plaintiff's father—has uh, been connected with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Well, the Competitive Enterprise Institute actually funded this lawsuit. They're providing the lawyers for the Moors to pursue this case all the way up to the Supreme Court. Right, and the book that he wrote was published by the Libertarian Cato Institute. So there's not much doubt about where they're coming from. But going back to the Supreme Court, though, Michael Hiltzik, 
there's been some recent rulings that are mind-boggling. And, you know, normally when you deal with cases, the issue of standing comes up, whether or not there's been concrete harms affecting real people. And the case of the Christian website designer in Colorado, it turned out that these people weren't real, uh, that the names of the people that were supposed to be injured by being forced to make cakes for gay couples were phonies. They weren't the right people. And yet uh, an incredibly important case was ruled on on this same-sex wedding issue. And then the other one where there was no standing was the Biden administration student loan relief program that was struck down in June. So tell me what's going on with the Supreme Court in terms of bending the law for ideological outcomes. Right. Well, as as critics have pointed out in, in the cases you mentioned, and there's also the case involving the abortion drug, Mifepristone. Basically, what the Constitution says and what case law, going back to John Marshall, says is that the Supreme Court really is limited in its jurisdiction. It can only rule on so-called cases and controversies. And that means that there has to be some some real person with who is litigating over a concrete harm that he or she has suffered. Uh, and that's the concept of standing, uh, which you mentioned, which is, you know, if you are going to bring a case to uh, to the federal judiciary, you have to have standing to bring that case. And what, what's been happening is that there's very questionable, if not non-existent, standing for a lot of these plaintiffs who have been pursuing these uh, highly con- highly conservative ideological cases, they don't really have standing. In the abortion drug case, the plaintiffs who brought it are basically anti-abortion doctors who, ha- who said in their own filings that they haven't had patients who've taken the, the the pill uh, that's an issue there, but they're concerned that maybe down the line they may have to care for a patient who's taken the pill and maybe had an adverse effect. And in any event, they resent the idea that they may not have a baby to deliver because somebody, some woman, has taken a pill and and basically had an abortion. And since they're they're doctors, they want to have babies to deliver, so they're harmed by the fact that there were fewer babies, uh, fewer pregnancies. Uh, and, and this is, uh, to say this is a real harm uh, suffered by real people is such a stretch that it's unimaginable that the Supreme Court would take that case, but it has taken the case, and it's overseeing it. And what this amounts to, basically, is the Supreme Court legislating which is not what it's allowed to do under the Constitution. If it takes a case where there's no standing, it just issues a ruling that says, uh, you know, this law is unconstitutional, even though no one has suffered, then that really is tantamount to becoming uh, lawmakers rather than judges. So, Michael Hilsig, let's talk about how this case that the Supreme Court has taken up, if it's ruled a way that, unfortunately, Many, including myself, suspect they will rule because they're more and more proving themselves to be political operatives in robes as opposed to neutral jurists. And the idea that this case could basically cut off at the pass what Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and others are trying to do, which is to levy taxes on assets on the super rich. In other words, it's been referred to as the billionaire wealth tax so why would this case kill that in the cradle? Well, there are sort of there are three levels of what um, the Supreme Court could do in terms of uh, ruling in this case. Um, the sort of lowest level, this is assuming that it wants to take the plaintiff's side, at the narrowest level, it could overturn the so-called mandatory repatriation tax. That's the one-time tax that was enacted uh, by the Republicans in 2017. And that would cost $340 billion, which is, or at least that's what the the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, estimated would be brought in from the repatriation tax. And that would be over 10 years. 
So uh, the Treasury hasn't even collected all that quite yet, as, as you mentioned. But if the court overturns that that one tax, then companies and and taxpayers who've already paid it would have to, would get a refund. They would file amended tax returns and they would get whatever they spent back. And then there's a, a the, the next step up is the court could invalidate a host of provisions in the corporate and business tax systems on, on unrealized income. That's um, capital gains that are sort of embedded in somebody's portfolio, but because he or she hasn't sold the stocks or bonds, they haven't realized that those gains. Um, and we know that uh, you know there can be trillions of dollars of such gains that are hiding in assets and can be extinguished because under our law, uh, you don't pay a capital gains tax until you sell the asset. And if you never sell the af- asset before you die and bequeath the asset to your heirs, then the value of that asset is stepped up to whatever it was worth when you died. And that means that all those previous capital gain, all that previous capital gain liability is extinguished forever and the government never collects it. So, uh, but that's not the case in in the entire corporate and business tax system. It's not at all unusual for unrealized gains to be taxable. So the court could invalidate uh, those taxes on unrealized income, and that would cost trillions of dollars. And then there's the third and broadest uh, possibility, which is that the court would say today that a, a wealth tax in the future would not be constitutional, and that would sort of undermine, um, stifle the efforts to enact a wealth tax on individuals that people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and and many others uh, um, in the Democratic Party have been advocating. And the suspicion is that that is the very reason why the conservatives on the Supreme Court took up this case. Well, that's quite possible because other than that, uh, you know, a $15,000 tax bill is not a particularly significant harm. And the Supreme Court only accepts about 1% of all the lawsuits that that are presented to it. And the question is, why did it take this one? Uh, when it ha- Basically, it's a, it's a busy court. Uh, it had a lot of other things to do. Why, why now? Why this and why now? Well, the answer may well be that many people on that ultra-conservative court, their main constituency are taking care of billionaires, and that's been reflected in the people that they hang out with and get money and perks from. Uh, absolutely. They, they're they hanging out with billionaires. They're their friends. They're taking benefits, uh, free trips, free air flights from the people who really are deeply interested in exactly this sort of case. Michael Hiltzik, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Happy to do it, Ian. Well, thank you, Michael. Again, I've been speaking with Michael Hiltzik, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and columnist of the Los Angeles Times, who currently writes a twice-weekly column covering business and economic issues relevant to life in California. His books include The New Deal, A Modern History, and Iron Empires, Rubber Barons, Railroads, and the Making of Modern America. And his latest article at the Los Angeles Times is How the Supreme Court Could Kill a Wealth Tax before it's been tried. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. 
Bye for now. Disappear.